0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today Donald Cohen joins us. He is the co-author with Alan McKellian of The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and how we can fight back, new from the new press. Um, So Donald, before we dive in and talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell folks a little bit about who you are and your background and what it is that brought you to this project.
1: Uh, well, well, thanks for having me. First, um, I, that's a that's a big question and a long story. Given my age, um, I'll try to make it real simple. So, I, I in, for the last ten or twelve years, I've run an organization called In the Public Interest. Um, before that, I, I ran some other uh, another organization in San Diego for about ten years, kind of a research and policy and advocacy organizations, you know, focused on how to, you know, at, at its core, how to make government work better. Um, how to make sure people had a decent standard of living and affordable housing and good healthcare, sort of a broad, broad view, but particularly in terms of, uh, and, you know, before that was an advocate on for universal healthcare and other, other things like that. So I've, I've gone through a lot of different, different, uh, phases of my career, all about in the end, you know, one form of, uh, social or economic justice, I'd say, um, In the public interest, the organization I run is, you know, does research. We do policy work uh, uh, around uh, the role of government, around public services, around contracting and privatization. So I I think how I got to the book is, you know, my day-to-day work over the last bunch of years has been... You know, looking at issues of prison privatization or the growth of, you know, school vouchers and charter schools or how infrastructure uh, is, you know, being financed now increasingly by private by by uh, private investors. And so, you know, sector by sector, looking at private involvement in in our public goods and realized that there was there was a bigger story to tell. There was something that kind of tied all those things together um, and, you know, wrote the book to tell those stories um, and at its simplest, I think it's really it's about the different ways that private interests get control over public goods and services, which is different from whether private involve, private. there's private involvement in those things, but how they get authority and power over the things that matter to us all.
0: So when you all talk about privatization, is, is that the definition that you have in mind?
1: It is. It is because it's more than you know. Many people think it's just selling off a prison or outsourcing a water system or or what have you, but it but it happens in different ways. You know, when there's no public dollars to pay for something that really ought to be paid for by the public, then there's an increasing you know. Then one, we're either left on our own to figure it out in the market or there's increasing market penetration into the in-market participation in those things. I'll just give a tiny example. That, you know, they're all small examples, Please. but they add up. You know, the IRS, I think many people know, is, is somewhat underfunded, right? It's, it's, it, it doesn't have the resources it needs to do a good job in collecting taxes and, and auditing taxes. And so if you call the IRS and you get on the phone, they don't have the staff. You know, you wait a long time. It's quite frustrating. So what has been created is a private sector Jump the line alternative, where you can pay a pay a service to you know to get to jump the line. It's a it's a you know so you know it's a really small thing, but it's like some people can get to the IRS quicker than others, and that's because we haven't funded a, a you know a vital public function, uh, a, a, you know as in a robust way because you know we all need to pay our taxes, and it's
0: complicated. We all need to be able to understand why, how. So let's do one, one other little bit of brush clearing before we dive in, and, and that is is talk about the, the general way that economists tend to define what a public good is and how you think we might think about that in a slightly different kind of way.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. So, you know, economists uh, tend to think, it, you know, a public good in a, pure, in a very specific way that a good, it, it's a public good if it's non-rivalrous or non-exclusive. In other words, non-rivalrous meaning one person's use doesn't affect another person's ability to use it at the same level. So healthcare is rivalrous. There's only so many slots in the doctor's office. Um, uh, the library theoretically is not, but, you know, you could think of other things that are not. Um. Non, uh, n- non-exclusive non means that you can't exclude somebody, you know, public art. You know, you can't stop somebody from from looking at the mural on the side of the building or all that. Um, but if it's exclusive, you only get to, you know, s- access that thing, whatever it is, uh, because you have the money to do so. So it's, I mean, I'm not an economist, so that's a very sp- simplistic view. We have a different view of, of what public goods are. And some people call them social goods. Other, uh, you know, people have different words for them. So don't want to, I don't want to get into semantics of it, but we th- mm-hmm. I, we we think that there. I mean, I I really strongly believe that there are things that we can do um, that are essential to survive, that we can only do if we do them together. And let me give some examples now. Mm-hmm. In a very specific way, healthcare. The only way to ensure we number one, health. I believe is an essential thing that shouldn't depend on how much money you have, whether you get access to healthcare. That's a belief. Um, it also happens to be you know, smart, right? Because I think we've learned through COVID that, you know, the health of all of us kind of depends on the health of each of us. So it's really, you know, all of our interests for everyone to be healthy. Um, but the only way they're to get every, assuming that your first, your goal is to make sure everyone has equal access and or access at least, but equal access to health services, the only way to do that is through government involvement. We can only do it if we do it together. That and I use the word involvement. I didn't necessarily use the word provision. It could be a single payer system. It could be a pay to play system. It could be Obamacare. It could be Clinton Care. There's a variety of ways to accomplish that. But you with public and private participation. You know, throughout the system. But you can only do it if the government is involved. Same thing is true for the for the mail. The only way you can get a letter in every person's house, no matter where they live in the country for the same cost of a forever stamp is if you have public participation. And public control over that, so that so I'd say those are the things that you you know we need we need clean air we need help we need public health we need education there are sort of things that we just we you know we need um, that we all need and we all should have access to. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Go no ahead. I was going to say so. You know, in 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 concert with you know the economist's definition of uh, public goods, you know, non-rivalrous and non-exclusive. Um, is um, that many people believe that the role of government or government should step in when markets fail, and I disagree with that as well. That that conception, because that the assumption there is the market is the primary instrument to deliver things, all uh, all things, but only when it fails, we should have, um, you know, that's when the government should just step in and fix the problem because the market has failed. I see it very differently. I believe there are things that there are public things and there are private things and public things often are simply market inappropriate. It's just the wrong tool. Right. it's the uh, you know it's like you know using a hammer to cook your eggs you just don't do it again if you want to get everybody something you can't do it you know, the market can't take care of it It's simply a different, it's a public thing. It's not a market thing. Now that's different from, you know, going to buy a stereo or a new iPhone or a new car and all that. Those are clearly private things. They have public involvement in it because there are rules and regulations to make sure that the cars, you know, have decent emission standards and things like that. But we buy them as commodities. It's a different thing.
0: So throughout the book, you walk us through an extraordinarily broad range of, of public goods that have been privatized. I wonder if you would just give listeners maybe a bit of a laundry list, right? What are those those kinds of services? So they've got the, the set of things in their mind, and then follow that by maybe picking one or two or three of those that you think are the most useful or telling examples to give folks uh, a sense of the importance of the issue and the consequences of it, but also to give them a sense of the book. So if you want to start with that laundry list, just what are the categories of things you draw our attention to in the book?
1: Well, it, you know, the book is called The Privatization of Everything, um, you
0: know,
1: as you know, titles are, you know, are, are both art and uh, an art and a science <laughs> coming up with a title. <laughs> uh, um, so, but it really is a lot, you know, th- let's um, schools, libraries, um sanitary i'm thinking uh, i'm I'm just imagining you know where i live you know trash water systems roads bridges health care medicaid you know public health care um social services foster care um science uh, let's see, uh, and Some uh, trash incineration. I could really go down the list. It's really parks, a little bit prisons. of parks, parks, prisons, pretty much everything that's in the public realm. I mean, it really is everything. I'd have to, it's an interesting question. I should yeah. make the list. Um, it's quite long. <laughs> it, um, and, you know, and there's kind of a reason for that. It's, you know, there's a lot of money being spent every year by uh, governments, you yeah. know, before COVID, which is, you know, um, it was $7 trillion a year. At every level of government, from school boards to the federal government, there's a lot of money, you know. And if you're a company and you're looking for market share and revenue and just you know, business, um, it's a good place to go. Um, so it's pretty much everything. So uh, uh, to to your second point, I'll give you, uh, you know, I think what a, a couple of examples, and I'll start. Of what i believe is the mo- with the story which is th- i think the the most troubling of all when we give up control and when we privatize so um chicago the city of chicago in night and some listeners may know of this um especially if they live in chicago everyone knows about this in the uh in in you know, the worst time of the Great Recession, cities are bleeding red ink. They're really you know, terrible times for cities and, and lots of folks. Um, uh, Mayor Daly at the time announced a proposal by a consortium, a private consortium that made up of Morgan Stanley, a national parking company, and a sovereign wealth firm from the Middle East uh, and that they would give the city $1.1 billion up front for, in exchange for the city, control of the city's Thirty-six thousand parking meters for seventy-five years. So it's privatization, but it's you know ultimately long, very long-term lease, certainly longer than all our lives. Um, so then vote on it quickly. They voted on it within within days, actually, and they're, you know their city in desperation. So here's what became true after the fact, after the analysis done by the inspector general and some advocacy groups and you know the, the press. There are two things that were really important there to understand. One is that are get to the depth of you know that, that are that tell some of the more impo- important dynamics. One is it, it, it is of course an incredibly stupid way to borrow money on your future parking meter revenues. I mean we all borrow money on our future income when we buy a house we do that. that's that's typical. but we don't know if we're going to be driving 75 years. I mean it's, it's just but. So let's say there was no other options. They needed the money, or they were going to have to lay off their entire police force, or what have you. They sold a billion dollars too cheaply. They got taken, just on the numbers. Um, and so there's an enormous, and you know, parking rates went way up. The company, the private uh, consortium, made their money. You know, are going to make their money back in fifteen years. A lot of extraction. A lot of money just going kind of um, to leave in town, for parking. But the second and more, I believe, more fundamental problem. Is that the con- you know contracts are very rigid documents, um, and in the con- in this in the, this contract and many many contracts like this are um, features that require the city for the re- duration of the contract, so remaining sixty some odd years, that if they want to eliminate parking spots, say for a street fair for a weekend. Or more permanently for mass transit, for a bus, uh, dedicated bus lane or a bike lane, or, um, or completely eliminated on Michigan Avenue for a street mall to, you know, to change you know, land use policy. If they do want to do any of those things, they have to buy the spots back. So if you are a city council member or you are the mayor of Chicago and you want to fundamentally you know, develop a, a policy to address climate change and get people out of cars and change land use patterns or or any any number of policy arenas that you have responsibility for, you gotta buy it back and you may not have the money, so you just don't do it. That, in my belief, is an assault on democracy. It ties the hands of elected, you know, of our of policymakers, elected and appointed, you know, and hired, to make decisions for all of us. And you see those kind of features in in contracts throughout.
0: Yeah. No, I was going to ask this. So this is, I mean, this is uh, sometimes referred to as a put-or-pay contract, right? Where you turn over your trash collection, but you guarantee minimum tonnage of trash or the same thing if you turn over incineration, right? You're literally guaranteeing that you're going to send that private contractor a set amount of money or a set amount of trash, correct?
1: That's correct. And in some cases, you know, there's a a couple of stories about that in the book that if the, you know, that, um, I can't remember the jurisdiction, the jurisdiction uh, agreed to stop recycling for a while or limit the amount of recycling or because some of the stuff that was going in the recycle bins was the mo- is was the most burnable and most profitable and most productive of this of the stuff to burn that's a public policy decision right that's where it affects public policy you know another example that we use a lot of course is you know private prisons uh we did research a number of years back and looked at a lot of the contracts around the country. They had bed guarantees in other words, keep the beds filled or pay anyway yeah. so and that you know we could pay them anyway, and that you know no no but we, we if the if populations go down, we don't there are resources we could have used for mental health for things that would help to get people out of prison, and we bring in a for you know we bring in a a, a self-interested and powerful uh, uh, organization, you know, cor- corporations in whose interest it is to keep the, he- the 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 beds filled, which is not in our interest. So that's really at the core of the problem here is that we have different interests and we need to make sure our interests drive. And when we do contracts, we're, we're too often embedding, uh, you know, private interests in a way that get in our way.
0: So let's stick with, with, Prison privatization for a second, because the the argument in favor of that is that, well, if we turn over particular kinds of public services over to these for-profit or sometimes not-for-profit corporations, they were able to provide a better service at a lower cost. So it makes sense. What do you say to that?
1: Well, prisons is the best example because it's it's, um, factually laughable. <laughs> um it's it's simply it's I was going to say not true but it's laughably not true. Just
0: demonstrably um, false.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a better way to say that. Um so but let let's break that apart. Okay, cheaper, better, faster, we can do things. So first off, wh- where do you get where do you get cheaper? Right? You get cheaper by spending less money on something. Okay? What do you spend what do they spend less money on? There's very few options in prisons to what spend less money on because it's mostly a, you know you have to keep the building in good shape you got to keep the security system but for them you got to feed people but for the most part it's people it's corrections officers and and, and nurses and, and others so you could pay them less which they do uh, and uh, you, uh, you, and what happens there is you get higher turnover you get more people tempted, you know, more corrections officers tempted to supplement their income in different ways. Um, you could have fewer workers, corrections officers, and what that leads to is more dangerous prisons. I mean, all of this is, you know, in, in the in the public record, and so it gets to the so it's it's just not true. I mean, there's plenty of horror stories in you know in private prisons of the just you know escapes and. You know, bad things happen, but the issue that I think again, I'll bring it back to the to the larger issue here because you know that you raise about you know cheaper, better, faster. That's the word. You know, that's the the mantra. So, and business, of course, is more efficient, which is you know sort of a core argument that you know we confront all the time. You know, and there may be businesses that are more efficient, but the issue is, as far here's how I describe and, and peel into that issue. Um, efficiency is. Getting more for less, you know, putting, you know, spending less, uh, and, or spending less time and getting more out of it. Right. That, that's just, you know, just more, you know, efficiency leads to greater productivity. So, but when that's the case, we say, but we say, so the first question we always ask is, okay, what are you spending less on? Cause like I, like I described with, you know, with prisons, it's, it's real things. It's lower wages, it's fewer workers, it's crappier equipment, uh, or supplies, um, you know, I can hire somebody. I can you know hire somebody to paint my house who is more quote efficient because uh, they use paint that's going not going to last more than two years. So it's always important to get at, at what that is. Now, it, to to the point of well maybe be, the better point. Maybe there are ideas that come from a, the private sector or some private or nonprofit or university on how to do things better. We should we should buy that. We should, you know, if if some private prison company came up with some idea how to reduce recidivism, uh, make prisons healthier, you know, all of the above, we should buy their technology or their ideas, but we shouldn't give them control of it.
0: So... Thinking of, of, I mean, either the, the parking meters in Chicago or private prison, I sort of think you've got a better example. So so why does this happen? Right, why, why do elected officials in control of such things, why do they surrender this power? Did Chicago know that it was given away a billion dollars and all it could see was short-term money up front that it didn't care? Was it incompetent? Was it venal? Did they have personal? connections to the people who are going to profit? Or Why do people do this if it's such a bad surrender of control over essential services?
1: Well, you listed a lot of them. Um, so, uh, so let's sort of break that apart. So one is why. Let's, from the benign, we'll start with the benign. <laughs> You're a mayor of a city and you have a problem that you want, and you got a lot of problems to solve and you don't have the money to do it. And someone comes to you and says, hmm, we could take this off your hands. You'll spend less money. There'll be no new taxes. Take it. You know, desperation. It's not crazy. They're not crazy. They're you know, they're not you know, don't have horns coming out of their ears. They seem you like nice people. You maybe got an election
0: coming up in a year yeah. or so, so you want to be able to show something and make the problem go away.
1: Exactly, and you may you know, I'm trying to be kind. Mm-hmm. You may legitimately want to solve something. You know, okay, so all of the above. Second, right. you know, to to your, to the second point that you just raised is, um, it, you know, the the life cycle of an elected official is shorter than the life cycle of a of a uh, of a bridge. Um, And so, you know, it's you measure the success and it's not it's not venal. It's a certain human nature to some extent. Um, You measure success of your term by what got built, not by what impact it's going to have in 40 years. Um, And so that's the other thing. So you really do sort of kick the can down the road. The third thing I'd say is, you know, there really is a massive imbalance and gap in expertise between private and public sometimes. Private, you know, Wall Street comes in, they seem like they're smart people. They've got an army of lawyers and financial accountants and all that. And, you know, you just got to, you know, you're, you're, you're running a city and you got a lot to do. Um, you know, you just get, you know, you get bamboozled. Sometimes, you know, because the diligence is exp- uh, that a city needs to negotiate, you know, really hard on behalf of the people is both expensive, time consuming and highly skilled. And and you have to have the guts to be willing to walk away. You, you know, when you, if you're, you know, I always tell people elected officials and policymakers is if you go into negotiations and you're not willing to walk away, you're going to get taken. It's kind of the bottom line. So Now. There are also relationships, you know? I mean, uh, <laughs> people know people and they seem smart and maybe, you know, whether they say, I might be able to get a job after I leave my um, office or not, you know, quid, you don't need a quid pro quo to want to be in good favor with people that, you know, that might, that might hire you someday. So I, I think there's a lot of reasons. And I, I guess the last I'll double back on is, the sales job, actually two more things. The sales job is intense. You know, there's lobbying going on. They're selling. Every time a new public-private partnership for infrastructure, Somebody, some, we get a call that there's a new idea, the first question I ask a city council member or mayor or somebody calls, the first question I ask is, oh, so they have, have they showed you the pretty pictures yet? they will show you the, and they go, oh, yeah, they did. There will always be renderings. We're human. You know, it's cool. Look at that that, that that building. And then the final thing is sort kind of the wraparound idea environment we live in, that, you know, markets are better, private is better, public-private partnerships is motherhood and apple pie. It sounds like the best of all worlds. It just, it, you know, we're in an environment where that stuff seems natural. Um and and that prevents us from asking the hard questions. Which you need to ask, you and need that's to look. Also, at, uh, and, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. It, no, it's it's. So you you. I mean that that sort of leads in. You 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 talk about the ways in which this is, you know, a political strategy and and an ideological project often too, and that's sort of part of it, right? We're swimming in this this sort of you know a uh, 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 public bad private, good uh, 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 atmosphere that, that renders people available to be taken advantage of? I mean, do you think those things sort of, of work together?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And, you know, it's not, nothing is,
1: you know, everything is complicated, of course. And so there are, you know, the, the anti-government sentiment didn't happen by itself, Right. I mean, government didn't do everything, right? The you know, the government's complicated and all that. But there are forces, there are ideologues, who you know have spent you know decades trying to convince people that government's the problem. You know, the, you know, the Reagan's quote is the most famous, right? You know, I'm here from the, the most nine most dangerous words in the you know in the English language is I'm from the government and I'm here to help. There was kind of a conservative marketing campaign uh, against government, and what's interesting about that. Is it's you know again it's the, the tr- we're in a post post fact post truth world, but the truth is wrong, right? There is public and private in virtually everything around us. Um, the water, you know, you turn on the sink and the water comes out. Um, the paint on your wall used to have lead in it, and it doesn't because of public action. There's actually an massive amount of public, uh, you know, things that are. You know, common sense right now um, that we that we take for granted that all happened because of you know some kind of government action, spending or regulation or, or something like that.
0: Why don't we go back to to one of the beginnings that you point to, and we've talked a little bit about the ways in which privatization can be both a political and ideological project. It can also be an explicitly racist project. So I wonder if you talk to us a little bit about Milton Frieda, Friedman and the early efforts at school vouchers and the privatization of schools and what's come to be called school choice.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. Well, Friedman came, Milton Friedman uh, came up with the idea in the fifties, I think mid to late fifties, of you know the idea of school vouchers. Now, he he didn't think that government had a role in education. I mean, he was truly in you know ideological libertarian in the iron. medicine
0: right. for that matter, right? Or med- yeah, I mean, he, he, had, a, he had a
1: different worldview. He yeah. had the Ayn, Ayn Randian libertarian worldviews. We we're on our own. You don't need government for these things. So. Uh, so that's sort of the, in the intellectual ferment of the time. When Brown versus Board of Education happened and efforts to integrate schools, you know, and uh, desegregate schools in, in the South, um, um, states passed voucher policies, right? They passed policies that would allow, in, you know, individuals, white people, to take their money and go to a white school. I mean, there were, they were, you know, some of these were actually referred to as segregation academies so that literally segregation, you know, I mean, um, vouchers and privatization of public education was the response, was the solution quote in in, in quotes to, uh, to integration for racists, you know, for, for segregationists. So, and it's, you know, in the benign language of choice. Now, and that's what they were called back then, these choice plans. Now, it was ultimately those found unconstitutional and the vouchers didn't happen. So fast forward to today, and school choice is now a very popular and common idea across in all the spectrums. When my children were in school, we had choice within the public district. We could look around and decide which school within the, within the public district that we could go to. But now choice has become, again, Uh, And, you know, in many ways, an effort to privatize public education in a couple of ways. Um, One is vouchers. Um, There is, you know, um, this year i mean of last few years but this year in particular there are many many voucher uh, state level voucher legislation you know laws passed to allow school vouchers for people to exit, and then uh, the and then charter schools in a very particular way charters are a little bit more controversial there are good charters and bad charters many people say you know when you when you open the discussion of charters they go oh charter schools are you for them or against them it's a it's a ridiculous question it's it's a, it's an irrelevant question there are good charters and bad charters the issue is what are the Impact of a of adding a market based system to the public system, and what's happening to you know to, to, without going too far into the weeds, what's happening is you're seeing a couple of things: increasing segregation again, stratification and segregation as yeah. people ch- as you know as parents choose it's legit, but you know when something's in a market, you know when something's in the market, yeah, that's what happens: things get stratif- stratified and, and segregated, and then there are, there are even individual cases where um, schools, private schools, uh, this happened in North Carolina this year, actually, in the last couple of years, private schools, who, you know, the parents were paying tuition, prime, you know, predominantly white school, realized that they could get public dollars if they converted into a charter, because those are publicly funded. They did, and they got federal grant to, to help them do it. That's, and that school is still predominantly white. So, you know, again, a lot of it is bit by bit, but the bit by bits are, are adding up in, in significant ways. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll make another point here. This s- segregation, you know, hurts us all. Integration helps us all. I'm, I'm sure you've read Heather McGee's book or you know no, I've heard of this book. Um, to the, ex- you know, we're a very divided nation. We've always been a divided nation, but something's different now. And uh, we feel, you know, it feels that way. Um, and our our, the lack of our, connecting with each other and interacting with, with each other uh, helps that division massively. So it's really good if kids are in school with different, with different kinds of kids, with different races, with different classes, with different ethnicities, with different religions, that really is, you know, will make for a better America and a more humane country. So it's not just about the transaction of which school is better. It's about when you put things in the market, when you use market methods, you know, ways to deliver goods, which is what charters are about, um, you're separating us into our market segments as opposed to putting us, figuring out how to put us together as, you know, citizens and residents of the same community.
0: You're listening to the New Books Network, and we have just scratched the surface with Donald Cohen, who's been talking to us about his new book, co-authored with Alan McKellian, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America, and How We Can Fight Back, uh, new out from the new press. Donald, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I I look forward to listening and looking at uh, many of the other interviews that you and uh, you do.